You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church and you are about a couple of moments away from listening to a sermon exhortation, and it's going to be legit. Now, I have a wise and biblical invitation for you to risk something today, and it's going to be at the heart level and at the head level. Let's start with the head. You know, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, it says that our thoughts are not like God's thoughts, and our ways are simply not like God's ways. And so the invitation today is that you would take your thoughts, hold them captive, and to look at the Word of God and to change your thoughts upon the text that you see today. And then at the heart level, we see in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, that we are not to lean on our own understanding. We say it here at RCC that our feelings are not to be the boss. And so if we take this anthem today and we say our feelings and our thoughts are both going to be under the subjection of the Word of God, beautiful things can occur in this sermon and in any sermon that you listen to. So that's our hope and that's our aim. Let's proceed with today's sermon grace and peace. Church time, let's grind. Holy Spirit, may you shine. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, let's open them to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to be all up in this text in just a little bit. And, and today, I want to remind you of our aim throughout the remainder of this Redemptive Christianity series. Okay, so, so here it is. For the rest of your life, and I mean it, always know there are two groups of people that, that, that are following Jesus that, that the Bible describes because there's a very large group of people referred to in the Bible as the crowd and, and there's a significantly smaller group of people referred to as, as the called. And, and the biggest difference between these two groups of people is that the crowd came to Jesus and they sought him because they wanted to get what they wanted to receive from him, folks. Whether that was healing from stuff or deliverance from stuff or opportunities for stuff or to gain more stuff, Jesus was a means towards getting more stuff, folks, and desirable things. And, and differently, the, the called group of people were primarily drawn to, to Jesus himself and, and not what Jesus could necessarily do for them. Folks, Jesus was the gift in and of himself. We've been talking about that and we've been learning that. And, and therefore, this series is all about redeeming Christianity, meaning to rediscover or to reclaim Christianity in a way that ushers us back into a relationship with Jesus, or maybe for the first time entering into a relationship with Jesus that is radically present and, and, and deeply true and vastly satisfying. It's all about moving our relationship with Jesus from an informational one where we kind of know facts about him to a relational one. It's about moving away from spiritual foundations that are largely built upon Christian traditions and walking towards new foundations that are actually based, folks, upon God's word. It's all about living and enjoying the called life as we practice being in the presence of God. Because folks, that's what actually saves. Now, now last week in part two of this series um, titled The Role of Scriptures, we had segment A of that conversation, and it was all about the canonicity of the Bible and trusting God's revelation 
of himself. And, and we learned that the Bible is sufficient and infallible, meaning it is without any genuine material error, meaning we broke that down, right? Meaning that the Bible is without, is without any reported or verifiable failure of the product, which is the Bible being the product that hinders it. it or its performance in any meaningful way that hinders what God is ultimately trying to work out in his redemptive plans. And, and we as Christians, we learn we, we have to believe that with all of our heart and, and all of our mind. We learn that though this conversation is often charged for so many people in terms of the infallibility or the sufficiency of the scripture, and it's a church dividing and a, and a friendship complicating and an uncomfortability creating heart closing situation, we learn that we as the people of God, we can't approach that conversation that way, right? We, we should be able to discuss things openly, patiently, and with great circumspection. We learn that we shouldn't continue living with secret chambers in our heart uh, with that remain unanswered and closed off from discussion due to past experiences or, or fear of what might come out of our heart. We learn that those unsettled places can indirectly affect our ability to burst open with the Christian passion and the excitement that God is calling us to be driven by. Willing that th this happens because if we fully can't trust God and we're unsettled about the book that talks all about him and explains who he is and, and who we are, if we're unsettled about that, of course our Christian passion and excitement can't be all that God's calling it to be. We learn that the canon of scripture is the standard or the criterion, or think about it this way, the measuring stick that God uses to judge and explain who he is and, and, and what he's about and, and what he ultimately wants. And in response to that truth, as a byproduct, we learn that the Bible or the canon of scripture depicts who we are and, and what we are about and ultimately what we are to do and pursue. We learn that the church never, ever, ever has the right to declare something to be scripture. That's not what the church ever has done. Instead, the church can only recognize what is already scripture, what is already inspired. We learned that that's what the church was really doing. And we learned that the five main criterias that the early church used, there were more criterias, but, but the five main ones that we talked about to, that the early church used to discern how to put the Bible together and, and which letters or, or, or books or scrolls already bared the mark where one, did it have apostolic tradition? And so we, we talked about that. Another one was, does the book in question agree with other books that have already been accepted? And so I explained that. We, uh, another criteria was, is this book in question historically accurate? Like, does it match up with other hist historical things and geographical things, not just by the Bible, but by other ancient books and historical documents that depict history? Another one was, does the letter or scroll or book in question have traditional use in the church? And we explained that. And then finally, we talked about the one, the one that really just gets me, hits me in the heart. Does the book ring truth to the believer's heart? And does it have wide acceptance 
among the people of God. And, and finally, we learn that there are eight main genres, right? Because basically any book that's not in the Bible doesn't belong in the Bible. But, but to help us to think well, oh, we talked about eight main genres, right, that, that don't belong in the Bible. And one of them was pseudepigrapha, right? False graphe. We, we, we unpacked that. Another one was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we talked about what that was. Or the Apocrypha. We talked about the Quran a little bit. We talked about the Book of Mormon. We talked about the New World Translation of the Bible and the Science and Health book in Dianetics. And folks, that was a, a deep conversation. I hope it was a productive conversation. But, but now that brings us to today, part three, titled The Role of the Scriptures. And we're moving into segment B of this conversation. And it's about reading in the presence of Jesus. Oh man, and that's going to be so very critical. And today, I want to start off with a very important question. Are you ready? Okay, so, so here it is. What does Scripture say about itself? Like, like what categories and what parameters does the Bible share in regards to how it wants it to consider it? You ever thought about that? Like, like, is it authoritative? Is it inerrant? Meaning, does it speak perfectly? Is it sufficient? Meaning, does it contain what is needed for us to do what we need to do in our lives and to know God sufficiently? Okay, so so today and throughout these very um, these first couple sermons, right, part one, part two, and coming into today, we're going to keep considering the Bible through these categories and, and through these questions as we work through the role of the Scriptures, folks in our lives, because this series is all about experiencing a Christianity that saves, right? That's, that's why we're here, and that's only possible when we live in the presence of Jesus. And so we, we, we want to we live a Christianity that saves, we, we want to live authentically, we want to feel God, and the only way we can do that is to be in Jesus's presence. So whether we're learning about forgiveness, or generosity, or serving, or prayer, or really any other subject matter, Everything we learn and every single thing that we are is going to be based upon God's holy word. And so understanding the role of scripture is really the only way to start this journey. Does that make sense? Like I'm not that creative. If we want to know God and be in his presence, we got to understand the role of scripture. And after today, I'm really hoping we're really starting to gain some, uh, some traction in this vein or in this road so that that would be true for, for everyone listening today. Now, very early on in chapter one of our Ephesians series, way back if you were here for that, we talked about the stunning reality that God is the creator and we are his creatures. Like, like he's, he's, he's the creator and he created us and we are the creatures. And for the glad purpose of cultivating a redeemed community, we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose to communicate to us in a very specific way in order that we might excuse me, that we might have what we need to reestablish a right relationship with him. Do you remember that? And so whether it was being chosen or adopted or forgiven or equipped or redeemed or forever wealthy or sealed by the Holy Spirit, all of it, folks, was God communicating with us. Just, just get that in your head. It was literally God speaking to us. And folks, we are desperately in need of God to continue to speak to us Today, so today we're going to talk about biblical authority. Everybody say biblical 
authority, meaning that the Bible is God's authoritative thoughts. It's his authoritative desires and commands and agendas for his people. And I'll be honest, I think this is a very difficult conversation for us to have today, primarily because deep within the DNA of who we are, folks, we aren't really big fans of external authority, are we? Let's just be honest. Like, we prefer internal authority that, that comes from ourselves, where we kind of, you know, think our way to the truth and think our way to what we want to believe might be real in this world. And, and if we're really being honest, we don't really take too kindly to someone else telling us the truth about ourselves and definitely defining who we are. Okay, so today, I want to guide us into understanding why that is. Like, like why are we so deeply um, opposed to someone else telling us truth or someone else telling us who we are. I want to get underneath that because we have no shot, no shot at practicing being in the presence of God, literally being with Jesus if we don't understand culturally, socially, and historically some of the roadblocks that are, that are pervading our hearts and get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Okay, so track with me. We are all children of what historians call the Enlightenment era. And, and though we're not going to do a deep dive into a history lesson about this concept, in short, I want you to know that the motto of the Enlightenment era is this. Have courage to use your own understanding. And this was from a German philosopher, folks, and his name was Immanuel Kant. Okay, now there's a lot, there's a lot packed into this short little sentence. So don't confuse the brevity of how short this little thing that this German philosopher said. Um, don't, don't mistake its shortness with the earth-shattering impact that it had on our world, and most definitely that it had on you and me. Because Immanuel Kant was saying, hey yo, hey yo, you need to have courage to throw off the shackles and the chains of, chains of religion and spiritual authority that have been holding humanity back since the beginning of time. So have the courage to pursue truth, true truth that comes from within yourself. Don't be a mindless, robotic, spiritual idiot. No one can tell you the truth about yourself but you. External authority does not exist. It's a human construction to control you. So, so no more bondage, no more chains, be enlightened, be spiritually inclined from within yourself and leave behind the external shackles of spiritual authority and religious practices and have courage to pursue truth in and of yourself. Okay, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is in my DNA, and whether you realize it or not, this is most definitely in your DNA at some degree, too. But, but what's so crazy is that each and every one of us knows deep within our hearts that external authority absolutely does exist. And that it's necessary. We just do. Like, like we know that there are external authorities that we have to answer to all the time and that we have to give 
an account to. Like, here's an example. When I was 18 years old, I was going to Bethany University where I played college basketball alongside my lovely wife, Jillian. She was also a college basketball player there on the women's team. And so we had the opportunity to have a, a partnership with the with an NBA, um, with NBA teams and players sometimes because of Jillian's father, who was our who was the coach and used to play in the NBA and he had connections. Okay, so so check this out. I got the, the privilege and the glad opportunity to work at Michael Jordan's motorcycle camp, and it was a fundraiser for our university to gain some sponsorships and some funding for our university athletic program. Okay, so so all of us um, student athletes, we're, we're at Michael Jordan's motorcycle thing, and, and he's there, and other celebrities are there, and they gave us very specific instructions. Like there's directors of marketing there, and managers, and, and all these people, and one rule that they said was very, very important was to not interact with the talent, meaning don't be a fan talking to all so the celebrities. If you're security, do your job. If you're getting water for them, do your job, but don't interact with them. Keep your mouth closed. Do your job. Okay, so so we're all doing our job, and, and I'm in this tent, and, and it's all going down, and then Michael Jordan walks onto the scene, and, and he beelines straight for a couple of the players. And, and what do you think happened? The, the players kind of froze, and they were like, oh gosh, here comes a, the CEO of the camp, and we better do our job. Except Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan walks straight up to us and starts to talk and engage with us. And he was like, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm giving you permission with my authority to talk. Let's, let's talk for a little bit. So what do you think happened? Oh, man, we all started talking and chirping away. Why? Because the authority, the authority walked into the room. He stepped, he stepped in, folks, and we felt the shift in the room, and it was clear, and it was palpable. Now, that's just, that's just one time that I experienced external authority in a way that was so, so obvious to me. And, and chances are, if I have the opportunity to meet with any one of you listening today, I'm confident you could give me examples as well of external authority that's happening in your life from time to time that was real and, and powerful and, and, and it gave you perspective and you felt that authority, right? Okay, but if you're sitting here saying to yourself, that's not true of me, Pastor Brandon, I've I've never had external authority. I never experienced that in my life. Okay, okay, well, well, how about this? You know that one time when you were going about 10 to 15 miles above the speed limit? You remember that day? And, and then about three or four blocks ahead, you know how the police officer, he was on a motorcycle or maybe he was in an SUV and he was kind of like sticking his little tail barely out the corner and then all of a sudden you saw him? <laughs> okay, you remember in that moment how once you saw him right there, you kind of just sped up and then you, you honked your horn and you flipped in the bird and you turned your music up even louder and you just danced the night away? You remember that? <laughs> No, 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 no. That's not how the story went, did it? You didn't do that. Okay, so what did you do in that moment? I'll tell you what you did. You took that heavy foot off that gas pedal, didn't you? And you put your, your foot on the brakes a little bit. And some of you started braking hard. You put that phone down. You threw it on your lap real quick. And, and some of us put that, our hands started levitating back up to that 10 and 2 position. And we were a little bit nervous, weren't we? Okay, brothers and sisters, so we most definitely know external authority exists, and we respond to it. it, it it's just, it just is what it is. But, but maybe for you, maybe for you, what resonates isn't something so arbitrary and simple. Maybe for you, it's something more intimate and something significantly 
more sobering, right? Maybe for you, it's a, it's a cancer diagnosis or a diabetes diagnosis or, a, or a, another diagnosis that just hits you in the heart. And, in, in, and folks, in that moment, German philosopher Immanuel Kant's motto of the Enlightenment, meaning to have the courage to figure out your, your, your cancer or your MS or your Parkinson's disease on your own, folks, it's not going to be very helpful to you in that moment is it? In fact, if you proceed forward demanding to figure things out within yourself regarding these deadly diseases, literally everyone around you is going to think that you're desperate and that your thinking is discombobulated and that you're being foolish, right? And and your family's going to be frustrated and ultimately disappointed in you and they're going to call you selfish as you take your life disproportionately into your own into your own hands. Because folks, let's just face it. When you get a cancer diagnosis, you need an external authority figure of a doctor to come in and say, hey, here are the cancer treatments available. Here's the options. Because these are the things that are gonna help you to beat this so we can cure you with the highest success rate possible. And parents, hey, we as well, we need external authority to exist too, don't we? So we can lead our children through, through difficulties and complexities of life as they grow and develop. It's just true because we'll need to lean upon that authority, not just influence. We're going to need real authority in the time specifically when we need to say to our children, son, at this point, I just need you to trust me. I need you to go where I'm telling you to go. Baby girl, not today, but maybe next time. I need you to avoid this situation. I need you to walk into this other um, alternative. It's going to be good for you. I'll explain later, but that's, but that's the decision. Okay, but despite authority existing and despite us knowing in our hearts that is true, and dare I say, despite us knowing that at times we know that authority is welcomed by us, there's still a larger part of us that d wishes that it didn't exist, right? We do. Well, today, I want you to know that the main reason that that larger part exists is because we want to pursue both knowledge and truth on our own without any external authority attached to it. Oh, I want to say this again. I want you to know the main reason why we are so opposed to external authority is because we have an insatiable appetite to pursue truth and knowledge on our own, and we don't want an external authority figure telling us how to think. And, and that is where our having a firm foundation and belief on the role of Scripture and seeing the love, love, love of God and the witness of Jesus becomes so very important for us. Okay, so with that backdrop, are you with me? With, with that backdrop and that reality of our resistance to authority and our appetite for knowledge and truth seeking to be done separate from authority, let me lay a few foundational realities for us today, contextually, about what we're about to read in 2 Timothy. So, so take what we're talking about conversationally, and I'm going to now set a stage for us right here as we enter into God's Word. Okay, so we got Father Paul on the scene. Oh, he's on the scene again, and, and he's an apostle, and, and he's a pastor, and he's a church planner, and he's writing to his, his mentee. We call him a disciple, but he's a mentee, and his name is... His 
name is Timothy. He's a, and Timothy is a young and developing pastor in, in an area. And so, and so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, a day is coming in which you're going to really need to work out this reality and this fact that external authority outside of yourself is critically needed. And that it comes from God. And Timothy, you will need to ground yourself in this reality to have a firm and secure foundation with God. Okay, in fact, God unpacks it really well in the first uh, seven verses of, of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. So I'm going to put it on the screen. Let's, let's check it out. This is Paul talking right here, inspired by God. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for the people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents man does this sound like our day and age ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Oh man, I want to unpack this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and lead astray by various passions and led astray by various passions verse 7 always learning these people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth oh man they they are men corrupted mind and disqualified regarding the faith Folks, verse 1 through 7 is staggering, staggering, because basically Paul is saying, Timothy, my son, the people I just described will not only be outside the church, which, which that's not even the greatest concern, these are going to be people prevalently inside the church, and that's of paramount concern. So Timothy, watch out, folks. Then things turn up and get legit. Because then in verses 10 through 17, which we're going to look at in just a little bit, Paul says, however, Timothy, for you, I need you to respond differently. You will need to respond with something, something different, something more productive, something spirit-filled, something that doesn't follow the patterns and the shapes and the customs of this world. So then Paul reminds Timothy that he that he came from a genuine Bible-believing, Christ-exalting family. So so yes, Paul does encourage Timothy to be grounded in what his family taught him. This is this is true. We're going to see that in just a little bit. But folks, pay attention cuz I want you to see this when we get there in the text because this is everything. Paul doesn't stop there. Paul also makes sure to challenge Timothy to specifically trust the word of God. Oh, man. This is very, very important, right? Because basically Paul was saying, though, Timothy, you've been raised in the church, and though you come from a family who is marked by Christianity, 
Even though from an early age you have been taught the word, you need to specifically turn to the word of God and to put your trust in the word of God. Timothy, make sure you avoid the danger in resting on your childhood learning and your good family traditions when it comes to God's holy vision for matters of life and eternity. Leverage, Timothy, what you've been taught your whole life from your family. But Timothy, make sure you are taught by God's word directly. Oh man, are you kidding me? The Bible is so legit, right? It literally communicates every single thing that we need. Okay, so so Paul goes on in in the text between verses 10 through 17. We're, we're going to get there. Just I, I want to set the stage. Paul goes on in verses 10 through 17 to lay out three specific aspects about the word of God. It's so clear in the text, and these three aspects will be our focus points today, folks. These three aspects about, about God's Word. Okay, so so let me just present those to you real quick so we can kind of know what we're doing today. Okay, so here they are. They're on your screen. Okay, so so the, the first aspect that, that Paul lifts up about the Word of God is the extent of biblical authority. Everybody say, Paul focuses on... The extent of biblical authority. Okay, this means that what it means, what is the extent of the Bible's authority over Timothy's life? Meaning, how far and how wide is the Bible's authority over, over Timothy? That's that's something Paul is going to deal with directly. The second one is Paul focuses on the nature of biblical authority. Everybody say the nature of biblical authority. Authority. Okay, this means how did the words in the Bible come to be and what makes it different from any other book? What's its what's its nature? Okay, then Paul focuses on the purpose of biblical authority. Everybody say the purpose of biblical authority. Okay, and this means why does it even matter? <laughs> why does it even matter that the Bible is authoritative? And for what purpose is God using it in our lives and throughout history? Okay, so extent, nature, purpose of Scripture, that's our focus to unpack today. Okay, what's the extent? How far? How wide? Is it limitless? The nature, how does it happen? And then the purpose, why does it matter in the first place? And this is the backdrop, the backdrop of everything we need to know when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, with Jesus. And across the extent and nature and purpose of Scripture, here is Paul's main point he wants Timothy and, and therefore us to know regarding the role of Scripture and the authority that it holds. Here it is. It's, it's going to be on your screen. The main role of Scripture and the authority that it's supposed to hold is that the Bible is God's authoritative word through which Jesus creates worshipers and disciples of himself. I'm going to say it to you one more time. The Bible is God's authoritative word through which Jesus creates worshipers and disciples of himself. Folks, 
This book is constructed by God to recreate us from the inside out. That's deep. And that's sobering because if the role of the scripture is literally to recreate you, meaning to start you over from scratch, like, like not just to infuse righteousness in you, but to literally dead to rise. You died, you, you, you begin again. If the role of scripture is, is literally meaning to start you over from scratch, it's going to need heavy, heavy authority in your life. And that authority and the resistance from it and the persistence that we have against it is literally stopping so many of us today from being with Jesus. Because to be with Jesus is literally to be with his word fully fully aligned with this word. Therefore, resisting the authority of the Bible in your life is to resist Jesus being in your life. I'm going to say to you again, resisting the authority of the Bible in your life is to resist Jesus in your life. And, and though that might not make a lot of sense yet, I hope by the end of today's sermon and by the end of today's conversation that this starts to become more illuminated in your heart and, and in your mind today. Because many of you, listen to me, many of you are stuck right here on external authority issue of life. God and his word, and it's hindering you massively from being able to move from um, having an informational relationship with God to a vibrant, spirit-filled, relationally secure withness with, with Jesus. And I don't want that for you. And, and, and it's this right here, the, the authority of God's word and how you relate to it or how you don't relate to it. This is what's keeping you roadblock from having spiritual foundations that are actually based upon God's word, as opposed to the many Christian traditions that you have constructed to fit, to fit your vision and your narrative for life. And, and finally, and most importantly, it's hindering you from the driving love force we talked about in part one. It's, it's hindering you from being driven by love, love, love. And you need that to live a joy-filled life that God has set before you. Okay, this, this is an important conversation for so many of us today. Can we agree? Like, if we're being honest, it's an important conversation for us all. And, and I guess this will be a great time for us to pray and to invite God into every single thing that we're talking about today. So, so let's bow our heads and let's pray about all these things. Heavenly Father, this sermon is difficult. This, this sermon literally is the most difficult conversation next to the whole why do bad things happen to, to good people conundrum that so many Christians struggle with. And so I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need your help not simply to preach your word, but to actually cut through the noise of the culture and to cut through the noise of the Enlightenment era and, and to cut through the, the noise of the influence of the spirit of Immanuel Kant on our hearts today. So, so Holy Spirit, guide me as I pierce into the darkness to illuminate the only truth that saves. It's because of your beautiful name that I engage today, and we pray. Amen. Okay, so, so let's read our main focus passage today in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It's, it's on your screen. 
Paul, inspired by God, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, so he's talking to Timothy right here. He's saying, Timothy, continue in what you've learned from your childhood. Continue believing these things and these things that you've learned. It keeps going. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What's going on here? We're going to unpack that in a little bit. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so so let's talk about the extent now, the extent of biblical authority, because that's the first thing that Paul addresses right here in the text. Did you see that? He talks about the extent of it. Listen, the two phrases that Paul uses to specifically refer to um, the, uh, excuse me, the two phrases that Paul specifically uses to talk about the extent of Scripture is sacred writings and all Scripture, right here in verse 16. I'm going to put it back on your screen. You see that? So, so sacred writings, verse 15, and then right here in verse 16, all Scripture. And folks, it is absolutely essential for you and I to know what Paul means contextually when he uses these two phrases, because whatever he is intending to say will hold massive implications on the surrounding text around it, and most importantly, on our lives, right? Do you get that? Like, like this whole sacred writing and, and all scripture thing, this, this clause is attached to some very large exhortations from Paul in this portion of scripture. So we need clarity here, radical, clear, biblical, theologically sound clarity here. Now, now we absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt that Paul is at least referring to the sacred writings and all scripture being the Old Testament canon or the canon we learned about right last last time which was the closed Bible that the Jews closed around 435 BC we can 100% know that Paul is at least talking about the Old Testament Okay, so, so indeed, Paul is 100% grounding Timothy in this conversation in the Jewish and Hebrew scriptures, meaning the, the Bible that Timothy has available to him in that moment. And he's telling Timothy, young man, young minister, the Old Testament is God's authoritative word, and you can bet your life on it, and you can ground your life on it. Folks, Paul is 100% letting the Jews know at this time that the Bible that they have available to them, the Old Testament canum, is God's authoritative word. Because remember, at that time that Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, the New Testament is still being developed. Like, he's writing it. That's what we're reading. He's writing it as we speak. Like, Paul is literally pinning, when he goes to the church, of, when he goes to Ephesus and he's in light chain house arrest, he's, he's pinning the New Testament. Okay, so, so we, can, we can agree upon that. Paul's at least referring to the Old Testament. But we also can know, based upon how these words are used throughout the New Testament, that he is also referring to the New Testament as well. And, and in some ways, track with me, 
Paul is, is actually saying that the New Testament that God is progressively revealing is going to be our major and our focal reference point for life practice as we move forward as Christians even more than the Old Testament. And, and we talked about canonicity, right? In, in part two, we talked about canonicity, meaning why we accept the 66 books that we have in the Bible and why we don't accept other ones. So if you missed out on part two, go back so you can understand what we're talking about today, but, but we're going to move forward. Because today, I need you to track with me that Paul 100% wants you and I to know that when he mentions sacred writing in, in all scripture, he is he is definitely and absolutely referring to every single word that proceeds from the Spirit of God, which we as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians, or more technically, we as traditional, largely Reformed, um, Orthodox Protestants believe is the Old and New Testament alone and nothing, nothing else. So if you didn't know that, that's what makes you and I distinctly Christian and not something kind of other, like people who come from a different faith background and believe in different gods. That's what makes us Christian, namely that we fully accept that all scripture, meaning all of the sacred writings, which is the Old Testament and the New Testament, this closed canon alone is God's authoritative word. Okay, so, so with that reality laid out before us, the extent of Scripture is obviously being highlighted by Paul right here in the text as something very important that he wants Timothy to understand, right? Okay, but here's the question. How important is the extent of Scripture for you and me personally? Like, like, is it different for Timothy because he was a pastor or he was living in that time, in, in that era, and in that season? Maybe we live in a different era, and the extent of Scripture means something different for us today. Okay, so, so this is an important aspect for us to be honest about in our hearts right now. And I think the best place to start is to shine the brightest light possible on the reality that we have strong inclinations and a gnawing propensity to pick and choose what, we, what text in the Bible that we like and which part of the text that we don't. Come on, just be honest. Like, we have a desire to read some parts of the scripture and to say things like, You know what? I'm not really feeling this part of the text. I'm not too comfortable with what I'm reading. I'm not going to do that right now. That doesn't apply to me. Or, it does apply to me, but I'll deal with that at a different time. I'm busy. However, this verse... I like this verse a lot. It lines up really well with my family priorities and my world right now. I'll get on board with that one. Folks, this, this, is, this is in our hearts sometimes. And before we move forward, I want to acknowledge that there's always someone, always someone in the crowd listening to the sermon like this and saying, That's not me. I'm a legit Christian. I don't act like that. But I want you to know you're dead wrong. We all have that spirit within us in varying degrees. Come on, wake up. And, and that inclination that's in you and me is nothing new. And Paul knew it. Paul knew it. Jesus knew it. And so he tackles the situation head 
on. Folks, that's why he's coming with such great intensity in this letter to Timothy about those who are arrogant and prideful in these strong exhortations to Timothy. We're going to keep unpacking that in a minute. And he wants Timothy to listen carefully because he wants Timothy to to focus on, uh, excuse me, because he wants Timothy to focus as a young minister on how important this concept of the extent of Scripture is for both the Jews and the Gentiles that are coming radically into a saving relationship with Jesus at this time. He's, he's armoring Timothy up, and he's teaching Timothy how to lead the church to be driven by a love of Jesus and not traditions. He's equipping Timothy with the foundations that are required to build up genuine people in Jesus that are recreated by the authority of Scripture so that they could be with Jesus everywhere and all the time when they move around their lives. Folks, he's literally teaching Timothy what it means to practice being in the presence being in the presence of Jesus in his life. And to be clear, Paul is literally laying out the distinctives to Timothy of what a Christian actually is. Are you with me? So so here's a very important takeaway. It's it's on your screen. To be a Christian is to accept that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the authoritative word of God in your life. Scripture screams loudly that failing to believe that standard disqualifies you from the faith and that you are not a Christian. And folks, this is seen clearly in verse 8. You could just just look at it faithfully. Now, now I'm not sure how much you know your history, but I want to share a story about one of our former presidents and his encounter with questions surrounding belief, God, religion, and spirituality. And the president we're talking about today is Thomas Jefferson. And he was one of the most brilliant and innovative and respected presidential minds of our country that's ever been in office. Okay, so true story, true story. So at the end of Thomas Jefferson's life, he starts to consider eternal things and spiritual things and divine things. He starts to camp out on this. And so he decides to pick up a Bible just like you and I use today. Okay, so the first thing that Thomas Jefferson does is he rips off like literally he rips away the old testament like with his hand he has a bible he rips out the old testament and completely and he says i certainly cannot believe in a god who would be like the god who is described in the old testament no way he, he did that and then he takes everything that happens after the gospel of john meaning all the epistles and all the other books in the new testament and he rips them out of the bible too so he's ripping out the front he's ripping out the back Backside. And so, and, 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 and he says that he would never, ever, ever be able to line up with the things in those books. Okay, so he's left with the four Gospels, and he decides to read those carefully. And so then he takes scissors to the Gospels, and he begins slicing and cutting and dissecting every single part of the Gospels that depicts Jesus' story where he found Jesus to be um, viewed in, in, as a deity. And, and, he, and he starts cutting it out, anything. And he says, this falls short of modern sensibilities. There's no way that Jesus can be a God or a deity. And folks, if you study deeper, 
If you study deeper into Thomas Jefferson's spiritual explorations, you'll see that he refused to affirm any miracles, any supernatural realities at all. And so what Thomas Jefferson was left with was a few teachings from Jesus, in his, and he put it together in his own writings, in his own book called The Life and the Good Morals of Jesus from Nazareth. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Okay, folks. So our man TJ is a child of the Enlightenment era, and he is using the courage of Enlightenment to be to base his life upon from his own understanding and not external authority. And what TJ is doing is very similar to what some early church theologians started getting tripped up and trapped up into, namely Marcion. Okay, Marcion, excuse me. And don't worry, I'm not, I'm not name dropping theologians to look cool. Let me explain why this is important for us to think about. Because this is your pastor's heartbeat when it comes to this whole area of intellectualism and, and in the Bible and, and studying and theology and some of the trappings that can happen if we don't approach it with, with circumspection and with, and with carefulness. You see, Though the church universally refers to um, Marcion as a heretic now, that wasn't always the case. But folks, I want you to know that the main problem where Marcion got tripped up and trapped up in his life, it happened early on before he ever went completely rogue and left field. Like, if you go on Google and you read them, you'll see like, oh my gosh, he's totally a heretic. But that's not the way to study. You got to go deeper. What b- Before he was a heretic and he was completely left field, what were some of the first mistakes and errors he was making when he was more faithful as a theologian? Okay, and, and I want you to know that the same fundamental problem that Thomas Jefferson has and is the same fundamental problem that Marcion had in the beginning. And it's the same fundamental problem that you and I most definitely have today. And that's, that, and that's the desire to rip the Bible apart and to pick the parts that make most sense to us because some of what we read doesn't feel sensible to us or reasonable to us. And so Marcion, Marcion excuse me, gets stuck trying to hold in tension the God of Isaiah, could be the same God as the God of the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 3, verse 16. And he has a whole thing about this. He's like, how can the God, of, how can the God that's depicted in Isaiah be the God that's depicted in the book of John? Okay, so let me give you a brief description of Isaiah 63, because I want you to really get this. I want you to be an amazing student learner. Because in the Old Testament passage, God is described as being in, excuse me, in this passage from Isaiah, God is described as being in a white cloak and dressed in righteousness, and his enemies are scattered all around him like a vineyard of grapes. And and God, in order to crush his enemies, walks through the vineyard, crushing each enemy on its head like grapes in a vineyard. Keep tracking. And he does this so violently that blood and juice and the guts of his enemies splatter all over the place like juice all on his white cloak. And the scriptures depict and say, Literally, that, he, that, that Jesus or God does this so violently that the blood and the juice and the guts of the enemies is co- completely covering the white cloak and you could see no more white cloak. Can you imagine that scene? Oh, man. And that's, and that's the depiction of who God is in that contextual place in Isaiah. Okay, so Marcion's like, 
how offensive and unreasonable this story is to my sensibilities. I can never believe in a God like that's depicted in Isaiah chapter 63. And to make matters worse, how can this God be the same God that's described in John chapter 3 verse 16 where he supposedly loves the whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Like, like no way, that's weird. I'm out. I'm out. And that's, and that's what Marcion conclusion was. Okay, now, Christ, now, um, now as Christians, we have always responded to these type of situations when we get confronted by, and with these pain points, and we say, well, the, the God of Isaiah ch ch um, chapter 63 is the God of John chapter 3 verse 16, because the God of Isaiah chapter 63 shows up, on the, shows up by giving his son who goes on the cross, he's crucified, he's crushed for our sins and for the sake of our, uh, for, and we get forgiven, atonement, and we say, all these fancy Disney Channel squeaky clean things. But folks, you're not hearing me. Marcerian doesn't like it, and he doesn't like it one bit. He doesn't like it. Instead, he wants to rip apart these true truths about God and say that it's not possible. And I think deep in our hearts, some of us have a little Marcion in us too, but we're just often too scared to step in front of the cross and admit that to Jesus. And so we'd rather play strong in our faith to save face with ourselves and in front of others than admit our doubt and our complexities and our questions before the throne room. But, but that's a deadly, deadly exchange, folks, because I'll tell you where things end for you when you just shove things down and you don't deal with it and you don't stand before Jesus with your doubt. Because in the end, Marcion makes the conclusion against external authority. That's where it ends, just like Thomas Jefferson did, and just like we often do in micro ways as well. Instead of approaching the Bible as authoritative and doing the hard work of humbling ourselves before God, aiming to seek after the peace that surpasses all understanding, ooh, I want to talk about that, instead of learning to live in the tension between both truths and seeing the majesty of Jesus in the real ways that he is, we walk away from saving faith in Jesus and reject both ends of the equation. We say, we don't believe in that God or that God. We walk away, we reject both ends, and we choose intellectualism and intellectual constructions within ourselves. Okay, so right here, Paul is urging Timothy to understand that the extent of authority in Scripture matters, okay? That's why he's focusing Timothy in, and therefore us, by exhorting that all Scripture all of it is necessary for both profit and for completion in Christ. And that leads to an important conclusion on the extent of Scripture. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. All of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelations, all of it, without any portions of it being disregarded, is the authority over our lives. A failure to believe in its complete authority in your life is to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, be corrupt in your mind and disqualified from the faith, rendering you separated from God forever. Oh, man, that is sobering. That's weighty, right? 
because but but folks we're just getting started because then Paul moves on to the nature the nature of the Bible the nature of scripture so so let's check that out now in the beginning of verse 16 so he said how much of scripture what's this extent all of it then he talks about the nature here it is it's it's on your screen second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 the beginning of it all scripture all sacred writing what is breathed out by God okay did you know that this text right here is where seminary students learn what's called the doctrine of inspiration? The doctrine of inspiration. In fact, in the older translations of the Bibles that used to circulate, um, um, specifically around 2 Timothy, they all read, all Scripture is inspired by God. So the older translations, you can still pick them up, would say all Scripture is inspired by God. And folks, you better believe it is most definitely inspired by God. Now, we don't do this very often here at RCC, but today we're going to look at a few Greek words. We just have to, because I think it's so important for us to really have biblical accuracy and to be biblically literate as much as possible for this important conversation. So we got to look at some original language, and I want us to continue taking steps towards this saving Christianity that actually leads to having a practical present relationship with Jesus. So we got to get this thing with the extent, the nature, and the purpose, but especially the nature of it right here. This is central for today's conversation. And and right now, if you're saying to yourself, if you're saying to yourself, I'm I'm learning some really great things today, but but how is this sermon really going to help me feel Jesus's presence in my life? Okay, I got you. I got you. We'll get there, I promise. I promise. Hold on, but there's no fast pass here, okay? There's there's no fast lanes or shortcuts or cheat codes to get where we're going. So 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 this this journey, this journey that we're on this journey that you're doing alongside me, we got to track across God's word faithfully. We're in class right now because what went wrong for so many of us in our head and heart, it didn't happen overnight, did it? It did not. So it's going to take time and patience and great circumspection and commitment for us to untangle that which is so entangled within our hearts and within our minds. Because lean in, loving Jesus starts with knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus starts with being with Jesus. And being with Jesus means accepting accepting Jesus. And accepting Jesus means accepting his word. And accepting his word is to understand its extent and nature and purpose. So we got to build this tree from the roots up. This is super important. I'm going to say it to you again. The end goal is to love Jesus and to experience Jesus' love and to be in his presence with Christian passion and joy, right? Okay, okay, well, in order to love Jesus in that way and to feel Jesus, you got to know him. You can't love what you don't know. In order to know Jesus, you got to be with him. You've never known anybody that you're not with. But in order to be with him, you got to accept him. If you don't accept him, it doesn't matter if he's in the room with you. And in order to accept him, you got to know what to accept, and we find that in his word. But in order to accept his word, you got to understand its extent of authority, the nature of how it works, and its purpose. Oh, man, we got to build this thing from the roots up. Okay, so, so let's look at some original language to help us understand where inspired or, or breathe out 
comes from in the original language. Okay, so the Greek word originally used was theos. Everybody say theos. Theos. And that's the word for God. Theos, theos. And the other word is panuma. Panuma, which means breath of life. Okay, panuma, breath of life. Okay, so so when Paul takes, and, and, and this is the only time it happens in the whole scriptures. So these two words are used all throughout scriptures, theos and panuma. But for the first time ever, Paul takes the word theos and he puts it together with the word panuma and he slams them together into the word theopneustos. Theopneustos. He is saying, and when Paul says theopneustos, he's saying the Bible is different. It is different, different than any other text that, that's ever come before it or that will ever come with after it. The Bible, the scriptures, the sacred writings, all of it is the breath of life. Oh man, we're in the thick of things now. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your minds so clear. Listen, that's why I'm not a big fan of the other translations that still refer to it as all scripture being inspired by God. And it's not because it's not accurate. It is accurate. But I just think we often misunderstand what biblical inspiration actually means. You see, the Bible is claiming that it's not just some illuminating text that inspires you and, and inspires me to live a certain way. Like, like yes, it includes that in our life change but it's so much more it's so much more because Paul is trying to say the Bible is literally the breath of God he's literally speaking to you and this gets into the fundamentals of what it means to be with Jesus and this is where you begin to experience his presence in your life in a way that makes you fall in love folks with who he is and this leads you into getting that driving force of love that we talked about in part one I'm serious pay attention if the Bible is literally God's breath of life in the form of his words speaking to you what does that mean for you if you're not engaging with it well, I'll tell you, it means you aren't hearing him speak. If you're not engaging with the Bible, you're not hearing him speak. Like, this is so serious, and I'm not playing. This isn't about to turn into some squeaky clean Sunday school lesson about reading your Bible. Not happening it. Folks, this is something different we're talking about, and that Paul's talking about. This is something more productive, and something infinitely valuable for you and me to orientate our minds and our hearts on today. God speaks through his word to you. He speaks through his word to you, and he calls it life. That's crazy, and and it really didn't click for me, honestly, until my life-changing injury in 2012, where I would go on this journey and eventually experience my Christ-centered breakthrough moment with Jesus a few years later into that journey. And my breakthrough encounter was that with, that I had was that God didn't just simply leave His thoughts with me. He didn't just leave his thoughts with me and with his disciples and the prophets of old. And I begin to see and I begin to read that that I'm reading uh, and I get to read and see and trust that I can actually know God and, and I can actually walk into a saving relationship with him because he's speaking to me directly. Paul is letting us know that God is literally speaking right now, authentically, presently, in real time.
Oh man, that's that's different. And this is where seminary and systematic approaches get weird and wonky, okay? Because when you approach God and the Bible like a book to be dissected instead of an intercom system by which direct communication occurs, oh, track with me, you distort the very fundamental image and nature and purpose of what the Bible is. That's true. I'm gonna say to you again, when you approach God and the Bible like a book to be dissected instead of an intercom system by which you have direct communication with the God of the universe found in the text, you distort the very fundamental image, nature, and purpose of what the Bible is. Like the Bible is so much more, it's much more of a Marco Polo FaceTime Skype call with God than it is a Rubik's Cube to be solved. Are you with me? You don't solve the Bible. You don't solve the Bible. You listen to God. I'm going to say to you again, you don't solve the Bible. You listen to God. Speak from it, folks. And you listen carefully and deeply and with humility. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need educational skills. You don't need a high intellect. You need a soft heart in the middle of your in the middle of your chest falls with an open posture 18 inches up serious okay okay so so paul also deals with this in his writings uh, excuse me peter also deals with this in his writings in second peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 let's let's look at this with great circumspection we're getting into the thick of things now here it is it's on your screen knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture okay so so so, so peter's already like i say hey nothing Nothing, no, no intellectualism, no, no, no revelation, no understanding, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is critical. Verse 21. For no prophecy. You know what the word no means in the Greek and the Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin? No means no. For for no prophecy was ever, 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 ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from who? From God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen, not one word from the Lord comes from someone else's mouth in the way of their own thinking. It doesn't work that way. Folks, both here in 2 Peter and today in 2 Timothy, when Paul's speaking, what we see the word of God being written through men's words. Yes, like, like, like it is human insofar as Moses was writing and Solomon was writing and David was writing and John was writing and James was writing physically. So yes, it's fully human in that way. But but more importantly, both Pastor Paul and Pastor Peter want it to be dramatically clear and, and dramatically known that the text is fully, fully divine and that it's not just inspired like a thought process and an inclination. It is theopneustos. It's breathed out from God. Look at me. They that all the writers in the Bible only wrote insofar as they were directly carried on by the Holy Spirit. Period. Scripture is the very word of God. It's not a representation. It's not an extension of his general principles. No. 
It's not through the eyes of men. No. And we got to start working this out today in our lives. Okay, now, now let's think for a moment about the nature of the Spirit's work and how he carried these men along, right? So, so okay, I get that. Okay, Pastor Brandon. Okay, so the nature is that God did it. It's inspired. It's literally his breath. Okay, so how, do, how does that work? Like, okay, there's them, but then the men are talking and then the men are writing. Like, like, like how, how did that all happen? Like, like what, was, what was the Holy Spirit's job in how he carried these men along and inspired them to write the Scriptures? Okay, so I'm sure that's, that, that, that's a good question. Well, well, guess what? Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that you and I would desire understanding here. And, and he knew that Paul and, and Peter would need understanding and clarification even more. Think about it. They're the ones that are in this position. And he knew they would need clarification about their roles and, and about how he was going to use them. And so check this out because Jesus deals with this directly in John chapter 16 to Peter. And, and, and eventually taught this to Paul. So let's, let's check that out. It's, it's on your screen. And Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. All of it. Not some. All of it. For He will not speak on His own authority. This is so critical. For the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so right here, Jesus is saying, everything the Holy Spirit is going to do is going to be through me. Okay, so, so Paul and Peter, in their respective writings, are pointing back to these words from, king, from our King Jesus. And, and Jesus is essentially saying, the Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming. He's on his way. And I want you to know that he's not going to speak the, into scriptures and, and add to the Old Testament on his own authority. It's, that's not how this is going to happen. In fact, he's only going to speak that which he directly hears from the Father and from me directly. And we're going to make it clear to him what to say to you. So, so have confidence, Paul, Peter, Matthew, whoever you are, that the same God that you've trusted in the Old Testament will be the authority figure and will be the same God speaking now through the Holy Spirit as he establishes the New Testament. And folks, don't you dare skip over this massive moment happening in the book of John chapter 16 because this would have mattered infinitely to Peter and to Paul. Just think about it from Paul's perspective for a moment. Let's make the Bible come to life. Because if you didn't know, Paul used to be a murderer of Christians because he wanted to actually protect the Canum, the Old Testament Bible that was closed in his mind in 435 B.C. So Paul was literally defending the Bible or his gospel and, and the integrity of the Old Testament law. And, and it brings me so much great comfort to my heart and to my soul to know that Jesus was preemptively ministering to the very things that we're concerned about today and what we get so troubled by. And so with Paul, namely, can we trust Jesus and can we trust his word? I love this in the text. That was Paul's biggest struggle. Can I trust Jesus? And can I trust these new revelations? Okay, track with me. Somehow, in some way, he convinced the biggest opponent to the New Testament era that had originally been an opponent 
and had dedicated his life to opposing the New Testament stuff and opposing the Christians and opposing the church to become the most prolific writer of the New Testament. Are you kidding me? That, that, that's, that, that should be so comforting. The greatest opponent to the New Testament era became the most prolific writer of the New Testament that we have. Folks, Jesus made sure Paul radically knew that these words in the New Testament would be breathed out from God. That's all Paul cared about. He wanted to know, is this God? And Jesus met him on Damascus and revealed this this is God. He made sure Paul knew it, and he made sure that the same thing he did for Moses, he was going to be doing through him now. Are you kidding me? Okay, so, so the Spirit comes as the author of the New Testament. I'm going to say to you again, Paul's not the author. James is not the author. Jude is not the author. John is not the author. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes acts chapter 1 2 pentecost and he comes as the sole author of the new testament and he does it through the writings of these men but only for the purpose of speaking the words of jesus and god the father so folks these are not just spiritual words with good principles for us to consider and reflect and decide upon they are literally the words of Jesus in the same way that Jesus spoke when he walked amongst the disciples. This is Jesus breathing out through the Holy Spirit into men for us to have access to him. You know, John Calvin actually has a very powerful quote about this heaven-born origin of Scripture concept that I think he says it really well, so we're going to look at that. We're going to put it on the screen. Here's what John Calvin said. The scriptures obtain authority among believers only, okay, this is important. The scriptures obtain authority, genuine authority, welcomed authority, welcomed authority among believers only when men regard them as having sprung from heaven as if they're, as if they're the living word of God were heard. Just, just look at this for a second. This is critical. Think about this principle. When we don't look at Scripture and we don't engage with the Bible as if it's sprung from heaven, we, we, don't, we, we don't think of it with the, with the respect and the reverence that it deserves. That's what John Calvin's saying. And, and, and basically, he's saying that when you read Scripture, it's like being in God's throne room where he's speaking to you and teaching you and nurturing you. Like, like the words are literally, they're heaven-born. Do you get that? Okay, now, now I had an old college buddy back at Bethany, and he told me about when he was visiting his extended family in Wyoming. And, and while he was there, he got the opportunity to visit. I'm not sure if, you've, if you know what this is, but he got a, a chance to visit one of the continental divides that runs through the state of Wyoming. And, and if you're not familiar with what a continental divide is, just know that it's like a drainage divide on a continent that literally separates one body of, uh, one body of ocean from, from the other. So, so literally, this, this this continental divide works like this. If you took a cup of water, an eight-ounce cup of water, and you poured it out on the left side of that continental divide, all the water would end up in the Atlantic Ocean, literally. Ready for this? However, if you literally moved just about six to 13 inches to the right and poured that same cup of water down, all the water would eventually literally end up in the Pacific Ocean. 
It's a continental divide. Like the continental divide, folks, is a crazy cool natural phenomenon. It literally separates the large bodies of water on our entire planet. Okay, so so this text right here in 2 Timothy, folks, is the continental divide of biblical authority. Like what you believe Paul is saying right here about all scripture and, and the sacred writings is the continental divide that will determine both your understanding and application of scripture for the rest of your life. Listen to me. And therefore, it's going to determine how you think and consider Jesus and how you come to know him. J.I. Packer says it this way regarding understanding the scriptures. It's, it's on your screen. When you encounter a present-day view of Holy Scripture, you're encountering far more than a view of Scripture. You're meeting a total view of God in the world. Okay, so, so let me say it again. This passage in 2 Timothy is the continental divide that's going to determine how you relate to God and how you relate to Scripture and how you relate to others. It's going to affect what you think is true. It's going to affect whether you, th what, uh, whether you think there is external authority outside of yourself and whether you believe that ultimate authority is God. Are you, are you tracking with me? So, so at its most fundamental level and at its most nitty-gritty level, if Theopneustos isn't settled in your heart, all scripture, all sacred writings, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Canum, New Canum, one canon, uh, Genesis through Revelations. If Theopneustos isn't settled in your heart, if all scripture being the words of God breathed out with life isn't settled, Listen to me. If you stand in opposition to even one word of Scripture, you stand in complete opposition to God because this is the continental divide. Because to stand, because to stand in opposition against any point of the text is to put yourself as an authority over the text rather than to humbly receive the Bible as your authority. I'm going to say to you again, to stand in opposition against any point in the text is to say that you're above the authority of the text. And you step away from humbly receiving it as your authority and you become your own authority yourself. Now, now here's something very important for you to consider when thinking about this in the context of being in Jesus's presence. Okay, so here it is. It's, it's on, your, on your screen. This is the truth about being in the presence of Jesus. My posture towards scripture is my posture towards Jesus. Repeat after me. My posture towards scripture is my posture towards Jesus. Pay attention. You can't have one posture towards scripture and another posture to your Savior and your Lord Jesus because Jesus' posture towards scripture is that all scripture is the word of his Father. So, so what Paul is fundamentally saying right here in 2 Timothy is what the Bible says, and it's what God says, which is, My children, this Holy Scripture is my life, and it is my breath. When you stand in opposition or neutrality to what the Bible says, you stand in opposition and neutrality to me. Thus speaks the Lord. I am the Lord. 
okay. So this leads to a very important question that each and every one of us need to answer in a genuine way deep within our hearts today. Okay, so, so here it is. It's, it's, on your, it's on your screen. Here's the very real question. Am I truly ready to take the position of dividing what is true and what is wrong and what is eternal and what is not and who God and who is God and what isn't him and what is and isn't salvation into my own hands? Am I going to choose to be dependent on the external authority of the Bible to tell me how to sort through all these things? Or will I choose the internal authority within myself? Oh, man, folks, our man Paul is trying to let you and I know that we need to stand underneath the word of God because it's a sure foundation that supersedes our feelings and our inclinations and our intuitions. Are you tracking? We should be leaning in and hanging on every single word from this glorious book like it has the power to save and to give life because folks because it does and and this leads to an important conclusion now on the nature of scripture here it is it's it's on your screen all scripture from genesis to revelation is breathed out from god by the holy spirit through the vehicle excuse me through the vehicle of humans for us to stake our lives on scripture doesn't represent god's thoughts it is god's voice scripture doesn't tell us solely what god once said it tells us what god is actively saying today therefore the authors that pinned the pages of the bible did not come to this wisdom in and of themselves but rather the words were given to them to pin down In conclusion, the Bible is a conversation from God that is plain to interpret, and it's not an abstract riddle from God to be figured out. Okay, so 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 we've talked about the extent of Bible, meaning that the Bible from Genesis to Revelations is important. All of it's important to God. It's the full authority of God over our lives. And then we just talked about the nature of the Bible, meaning that the Bible is fundamentally different than every single book that's ever been written before it or after it because it's theopneustos. It's literally breathed out from God inspired spoken from god from its heaven born its origin is in heaven okay so 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 we learned that but but what about what about the purpose what is the role of scripture in respect to its purpose in our lives okay so now we got to track to verse 15 of second second timothy chapter 3 here it is it's it's on your screen and so remember this, and so, and so Paul's talking to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Here we go, ready? Which, here goes the purpose, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, so one of the primary purposes of the Bible is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Okay, so what's all this about? 
Okay, so so basically Paul is saying that there's no salvation. This is this is this is so critical. There is no salvation outside of what is described in the biblical text. Like you won't find Jesus anywhere else but here, folks, in the Bible. And and this is so important when we think about the backdrop of the moral lens versus the redemptive ones. We talked about this. Like that so many times in our lives, we spend all of our efforts trying to be saved versus engaging with the full counsel of God's word. So, so what Paul is untangling here for us is that by seeing Theopneustos, all scripture and the sacred writings, as what makes you wise onto salvation— it changes the categories out of moral lenses into redemptive ones. So instead of earning your relationship with Jesus and working super hard all the time with your human effort to be better, to do better, it, it shifts and says, pursue thy scripture. Search thy scripture. Let that be the motivating force to make you wise unto salvation. This is different. It's, it moves it from your human effort to your spirit-filled pursuit. It moves it out of what you do for Jesus into where your heart inclines you towards him. Folks, the moral lens tells us to work harder onto salvation through our efforts with proper, with, excuse me, with proper application perfectly of what the Bible says. But it keeps Jesus at arm's length when you do that. However, the redemptive lens tells us to submit greater onto our salvation through our love for Jesus that will propel us forward towards eternity and that attaches us to Jesus. And all that happens when we search thy scripture. Oh, man. So in regards to our witness with Jesus, which is our focus for this series, Paul wants you and me to know that we won't find our relationship with God in any other way than to pursue this word. Not truly, not genuinely, and most definitely not in a lasting way. You got to dust off that book. Okay, so, so let's get even more direct about this. Any search for salvation or search for completeness, or search for fullness of joy, or for satisfaction outside of what the Bible describes is a search that ultimately will lead you to hell. I'm going to say it to you again. Any search for salvation, any search for completeness of joy or satisfaction outside of the Bible over time eventually leads you to a ditch, and in that ditch, decisions are made that leads you to hell. Okay, okay, so Paul is saying in verse 15, focus on the scripture, Timothy. Teach your people to focus on the scripture, Timothy, because it's through thy scriptures that they will converse with me. And, and it's there that I can steward and orientate their lives to receive salvation. Or I can make them wise for salvation. Now, now let me show you the reality of this in a quick gospel presentation. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Okay, so, so, so God the Father sent his son Jesus to, to die on behalf of all of us as sinners that we all might experience eternal life with him. And so he died and was resurrected, and because of that, rose out of the grave three days, came back lavishing gifts, and, and he's going to come again one day to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. Okay, so, so we, we, we know that truth. That's one way of presenting the gospel, correct? Right. Okay, but here's my question. Would you have any knowledge 
of this cosmic, life-changing, life-changing, life-shattering reality without the biblical text? No. No, he wouldn't. Okay, so that's what it means for the Bible to make you wise unto salvation. So God is breathing, breathing wisdom through Paul, and he's breathing words through Paul, and they're not Paul's thoughts, okay? They're not. They are altogether God's thoughts, and they're God's words. Like, like Paul didn't have the words or the emotions or the desires even to communicate this. I told you what he was doing. It didn't come from him in and of itself. Not towards Jesus, not towards the church, and definitely not towards Christians. And don't you ever forget that. But instead, indeed, God, through Paul, is urging you and me to seek out our salvation in Scripture so we can learn the story of what God is doing in the world so that we might know him more deeply so we can be with him. But folks, it gets even better because not only does the Bible provide wisdom for salvation, but it provides profit and teaching and a few other life-changing realities. So let's check that out right now in God's word. Let's, let's now go to verse 16. It's, it's so legit. It's, it's on your screen. All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God, right? So we got that. That's all scripture extent is breathed out nature by God, ready? And profitable, getting into the purpose again, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, now now many of you long-term Christians have heard this segment of scripture before, right? Like you've heard this a, a bunch of times. Okay, well today I want to talk about these four words from from verse um, 16, and I want to talk about what they actually mean, okay? Because it certainly, check with me, it certainly means that within your home groups and your sermons that you listen to and Bible studies and, and Bible classes, it certainly means that we can be taught and corrected and trained by one another as we hear the word of God go forth. It, it definitely means that. And it certainly means we can lovingly critique one another and, and encourage one another and admonish one another and teach one another the principles of the gospel. It does mean that too. If this That's still contextually accurate. Now track with me. While all this is true, and while we can, we can kind of get all of that and do all of that for each other, I actually think contextually Paul has something else in mind as he's being inspired by God that's even more aligned with the grand meta narrative of the Bible. And, and you might want to fasten your seatbelt right now because this is about to be everything for some people today. This is, the, this, this is everything. This is the epicenter. And I know it was for me, when I had my Christ-centered breakthrough moment. Because, folks, when I read verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training righteousness. When you read that contextually, what I think that Paul is saying is that not only can we, horizontally as believers, teach one another the Scriptures, pa pastor to the congregation, congregations, congregants to each other, but that the primary teacher is Jesus himself. All scripture is breathed out by Jesus and it's profitable to do this, 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 and this. The main teacher is the Bible itself. Folks, oh man, when you open the living word 
of God that we call the Bible, through his spirit, Jesus is literally talking and teaching you directly. Do you get what I'm saying to you? So in regards to being with Jesus and practicing his presence in your life, you need to awaken to the glad reality that when you approach Scripture, you are specifically being taught directly by the Spirit of God. You're being reproved directly by the Spirit of God. You're being corrected directly by the Spirit of God. And you're being trained directly from the Spirit of God, meaning the Spirit of Christ. Folks, Paul is saying that all of this is happening directly from and with Jesus. Okay, so, so let's think through each of these three ways that we could experience the presence of Jesus in our lives. Here we go. Here's the first one on, on your screen. Number one, Jesus presently with us teaches us. He teaches us, and this means that he teaches us through Scripture. The Spirit of Christ literally tells you and me what is true about God and man and the world we live in and the world to come. It's where he directly teaches us how to move out of our story into God's story. We learn that in Ephesians, but, but folks, it's more. It's also where he teaches us how to have compassion and to be a people who, get, who, who give second chances and 35th chances and 127th chances like God. We learned that in the book of Philemon. And it's also where he teaches us how to, how to have compassion and how, to, and how to give people an opportunity to be reconciled and to revive relationships. We learned that in the book of Philemon. This is important, but, but it's more. That's just one way that Jesus is presently with us. So, so he teaches us thy scripture from thy scripture. Here's, here's number two. Jesus presently reproves and corrects us. And folks, he literally does. With the authority he expresses through scripture, he expresses his disapproval with the errors of our lives that are not like him. And he corrects it and he sets things right. It's very real. Folks, we are all under the authority of God's word. Do you get that? And when Jesus exposes our thinking and our beliefs and our conducts as wrong, we are wrong. When he says it's wrong, it's wrong. Okay, here's number three. So, so, so Jesus presently teaches us, and, and Jesus presently reproves and corrects us, but Jesus also presently trains us. He trains us. And here's where, where Paul wants you and I to know that Jesus is simply better than any best friend or any parent or any minute, uh, mentor or pastor that's ever lived on this planet because Jesus directly and actually trains us on how to live with true righteousness like no one, folks. Like no one can. Jesus does it. He does it best. Okay, so, so here is the elephant in the room that needs to be talked about right now because it's so powerful and it's so productive and it's so earth-shattering to our modern-day thinking and, and our intimidation towards Bible reading. Are you ready? Ready for this? You can understand your Bible. You can understand your Bible. Repeat after me. I can understand my Bible. Folks, if the Bible could not be understood, there would be nothing profitable about, profitable about it at all. 
and and you can and you can understand and you can understand the but you can understand the Bible because Jesus hasn't left you alone at all. He hasn't left you to make sense of it by yourself. He walks presently with you every time you enter into the Word of God. So you're not reading a dead book that you need a commentator or someone to help you with. You're reading a living book with him talking to you about his book. Oh, man. But look at me. That won't happen for you until you decide what to do with the continental divide back at the nature conversation. Namely, rather, all scripture is breathed out from the wor- from God. Or is it not for you? Because if you make the decision to pick and choose what's true and what's not, the New Testament teaches you can't have Jesus. And so if you're walking around life aimlessly feeling no love and no passion, no excitement for Jesus, and if you're walking around struggling to love people deeply and to love the church greatly and to fill the Holy Spirit in you as you're communing regularly, if you're really, really being honest with yourself right now in this moment, can you, can you say that you're actually in this season of your life communing with Jesus? Do you have an active and a living relationship with the God of the universe? How real and how intimate is your relationship right now with Jesus when no one else is looking? I'm dead serious. Answer that question right now in your heart. Like, don't be arrogant and don't be afraid. Because if you're not accepting all scripture to be the ultimate authority in your life, and if you're not believing that the entire Bible is your truth and your hope fundamentally, I guarantee you that you're living a difficult walk right now with Jesus, folks. And you know it in your heart. And you probably got parts of you deep within your heart that feels fraudulent. I don't want that for you. You, you know those, those areas where you're lacking clarity and, and, and certainty. And you got doubt. And you've got real confusion. And you're unstable spiritually. Right? Come on. I know that some of us today. And you probably feel quite powerless about the whole situation. And, and sometimes you feel like your emotions and your thoughts and your perspectives overtake you. Like you want to believe, but your emotions and your thoughts and your perspectives, they overtake you. And, and sometimes, come on, be honest, sometimes you can even, you can taste the disconnect that keeps going on for years and years and years between your heart and the Bible. Okay, if that's you, I'm here to tell you with all my heart and with all my love, based upon the authority of Scripture, not me, this comes down to the continental divide. Will you accept the sacred writings of the Old and New Testament, all of it, as the external authority that God has given you to submit your life upon? Because meeting Jesus intimately is found right there in the resolve you make in your heart about that matter. Okay, eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your minds so clear. Okay, okay, so so let me give you this, this reality check moment that may help you sort through all of this and some of your stuck points. Okay, so tell me, how would you read the Bible if you were reading the Bible in the literal, physical, 
presence of Jesus, just like Pastor Brandon standing before you in real life. Just the same way I've, I've sat with you guys, I've ate dinner with you. How would you read the Bible if you were reading it shoulder to shoulder with Jesus next to you? Because that's the title of today's sermon, right? Reading in the presence of Jesus. Okay, so like, would you do some of the theological gymnastics that you often try to do to get out of what the text is clearly saying? if Jesus was shoulder to shoulder next to you. Because that's what happens, right? When we open our Bibles, and that's what's happening when we sometimes, when we're being met by the Spirit of Christ, but we don't feel it. When you read the Bible, I need you to get this, Jesus is speaking and Jesus directly is teaching. You are 100% being met by the living Lord who ascended on high and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's teaching. He's teaching from the graphe, the scriptures right now. So if Jesus, come on, come on, track with me. So if Jesus is here right now and he taught a passage, how would you, how would you respond? And then, then how would you proceed forward? If Jesus sat down right now at your kitchen table and said, Hey Mikey, hey Mikey, don't call anything that you possess your own. Okay, Mikey? Instead, bring it all together with your church family and provide all that you can until every single need is met in your church family. Okay, Mikey? And, and Mikey, I need you to feed the pastors, okay? Make sure they don't have any needs that you can't provide for. Provide for those things. Okay, okay, so, so how would you respond? How would you respond if Jesus was shoulder to shoulder at your kitchen table and he was telling you that? Because folks, Jesus is telling you that in his scripture. So, so how would you answer the question? What would you do? Would, would you start telling Jesus that he's crazy? Would, would you start telling him no way and to hit the highway? Would you tell him it doesn't fit your 401k plan and that you have a family inheritance plan to, to, to prepare for? Or you got some, some big business partnership deal you got to hold intention? Like, would you start number crunching and evaluating pastoral salaries before you decided what you could give? Look at me. Would you pull out a commentary as your first move and read 700 pages of dead men's thoughts about a verse that contains literally no individual words that you struggle to comprehend? <laughs> you know, like, you know, because you need a, a mediator to, to talk for you because Jesus is such a poor communicator? Like, would you tell Jesus uh, that what he's asking for is not reasonable or sensible like Thomas Jefferson or Immanuel Kant or Marcion? Look at me. What would you honestly say to Jesus at your dinner table in that conversation? Or how about this? What would you do if Jesus sat at your dinner table and directly said, Hey, Bobby, hey, Bobby, hey, whatever your name is. No temptation has overtaken you that is not completely understood by me. Know that I'm faithful, Bobby, and, and I'm going to show up for you, and I'm going to give you some ways to escape out of this pain point. And I promise I'm not going to let you down. I will not let you, Bobby, be tempted beyond your ability, but I will walk with you. I'm going to show you the way out. I won't disappoint. Okay, 
I don't know about you, but if Jesus was at my kitchen table, shoulder to shoulder in the middle of my sin, and he was like, I got you, Brandon. I, I love you, Brandon. Hey, I'm going to give you some, some escape routes, and, and, and I, I won't disappoint you. I promise I'm going to get you out of this. Man, I'd find that reassuring, right? We would all love that. Like, like if Jesus was that communicative and reassuring in our moments of weakness, things would be so much better, right? And it would probably even make our hearts want to follow up with them even more and be like, hey, Jesus, man, you're so encouraging today. Can we talk about the next thing? We'd be totally available to him if he was shoulder to shoulder and he encouraged us like that, right? Okay, but what's so crazy is Jesus is that communicative and he is that reassuring and that's exactly what he says about temptation. But folks, Many of us don't know how to approach the Word of God like that. Instead, we respond by telling Jesus that he's crazy, and, and we say he's insensitive, and that he doesn't understand us, and we say that our area of temptation is the exception to the rule, and we start whining and complaining and whining and complaining and, and, and saying that escaping temptation is impossible because we keep screwing up. And so we challenge and we basically say, Jesus, I don't, I don't believe you. Now, now track with me very, very carefully. If you engaged with Jesus like this at the dinner table, what kind of relationship would you say you have with them? A loving, trusting one or an empty, hostile, filled with doubt, argumentative one? Which one? Would you say that you have a, a pleasant one that drives you to want to come back to the table again? Or if you were having that back and forth dialogue, would it be a fractured relationship that you don't really prefer to engage in? Christians, if you act and respond like that to Jesus each time he comes to the dinner table, the dinner table of your time with him, are you with Jesus or are you against him? Are you rejecting what he's saying or accepting what he's saying? And, and please stop. Stop hiding behind the, I'm neutral. I don't, I'm not really with him all the way, but I'm not, I, I'm, it's just disgusting. Stop the neutral answer because Jesus refuses to accept your neutral, your neutral answers. Folks, the Bible refers all throughout the text to neutrality as lukewarm, uncommitted, and the verdict screams loudly in the Bible that neutral people aren't with Jesus, you are against him. And that's because you're still not choosing him and what he says to be your ultimate authority. And you're not banking your life upon it. Does that make sense? Okay, okay, so let me ask you again. Are you rejecting what he's saying or are you accepting what he's saying in your life? Because the answer to this question will tell you why or why not you're feeling the presence of Jesus in your life. Because sitting at the kitchen table, every time you meet with your mentor for dinner, only to reject or refuse or to argue or to explain or to rationalize every time Jesus tells you something, folks, that's not a healthy relationship. Okay, okay, okay. So, so that's what it means to read in the presence of Jesus, folks. It means that every time you open your Bible, it means you center your heart and your mind with the glad reality that, that based upon the text right here in 2 Timothy, based upon your belief in this continental divide situation, that you are literally having a conversation with Jesus. That's 
what makes it different. And it means you are radically, radically focused on whatever Jesus is telling you, knowing that it has complete authority of right and wrong, true and false on all matters of life. And that leads you not only to humble yourself before Jesus as he teaches you directly from the Bible, but it humbles you before your pastors or before Sunday sermons or your Bible study or whatever you're doing as you engage with the Bible because it humbles you in the insofar as it's from Jesus's mouth. Listen to me. One of Jesus' main ministries when he was alive and well in his physical form, walking with men and women, was to make them disciples, right? That was one of his main ministries. Of course, it was to die on the cross, but it was to, to make men and women into disciples. And he did it literally through the teachings of the Bible. Think about this. Jesus came and he met with the disciples. He first called three, then he called nine more, and he had his 12. Then he had other disciples that were following him everywhere that he went. And so we know that there was a crowd, and, and they weren't really with him, but there was an inner circle, not just the 12, but there was a small group that, that traveled with Jesus, and, and they were the called. But how did Jesus teach them? How did he make them disciples? Folks, he made them disciples by teaching them the word. He taught them the Old Testament canum, but he taught them it rightly. And then he taught the New Testament, and he started inspiring the New Testament through his words and then inspiring the apostles. Okay, okay. So if he did this literally through the teachings of the Kanum, and he showed the Kanum, and he taught the Kanum, and he encouraged people through the Kanum, and he nourished people because of the Kanum, and he formed men and women into disciples because of it, what do you think that means for us? Think, you ever thought about that? So, so quick question for you. Do you think that what Jesus did then, he stopped doing now just because he's at the right hand of the Father? Like, no way. Folks, in his ascension, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's still calling men and women onto himself. He's alive and well today, and he remains committed to teaching you and me, okay? you got to believe this. He's teaching us and shaping us for the sake of making us wise for salvation, Oh, man. But if we keep coming to the Bible hoping or admiring how it confronts other people, but we don't allow it to confront us, we're robbing ourselves of an opportunity to be in his presence intimately. Do you get that? And some of you long-term Christians are the worst about this. I'm just being honest. Like you're always imagining and wishing that your unbeliever friend was at this summer or that your wayward father would come to church today or your ex-girlfriend would have heard this message. Come on. No, you need this sermon as well. I need it. You need it. We all need it. We all need to sit with Jesus every day, okay? Because if we if, don't, you, I already know John chapter 3, 16. I don't need it. My friend needs it. You need to sit with Jesus everywhere. Genesis through, through Revelations every day. Are you kidding me? If we go back to the dinner table with Jesus analogy, if Jesus is actually uh, teaching tonight at your dinner table at 7 p.m., how in the world are you so deepened out that you don't need that message just because you already had dinner yesterday? Don't you still need to eat today? Don't you want to hear from your, the wise man again today? Don't close 
your heart and your mind, long-term Christian. Don't don't do it, folks. If you have you you have to start opening your Bible and reading in Jesus's presence. Don't read about Jesus. Don't think about Jesus. Actually listen to Jesus speak. Because Jesus speaks. Step radically into the reality that when you open your Bible, you are with him. And he is directly with you. It's going to change everything. When you open your Bible in the car, Jesus is teaching you. When you, when, you, when you listen to the word of God in the shower, Jesus is teaching you. When you put on your podcast Bible app, Jesus is talking. When, you're, when your pastor preaches on Sunday, Jesus is talking. You have to read and listen to the Bible with Jesus, folks, with Jesus in your presence. And as I learned, listen, and as I learned to focus on this reality, namely that Jesus is the one, who's teaching me directly. Folks, my walk with the Lord increased in vibrancy and authenticity and passion and so much more. Because you, like, you wouldn't fall asleep, right? Like, would you fall asleep or, or stay clicking on your phone while, while you're sitting across from Jesus at the dinner table one-on-one for an intimate dinner? No, you wouldn't, because that'd be freaking rude, wouldn't it? That's true. But, but we set ourselves up that way all the time, right? We, we fall asleep on the couch at 11 p.m. reading our Bibles, and we engage with it in all the wrong ways for moralistic reasons. But folks, if you're that tired at night and you have your friends over, wouldn't you just tell your friends, dude, I'm tired. I think I probably need to hit the I need to hit the sack or I need to go home. I'll come back tomorrow when I have more energy. I want to I want to be there for this for this moment. Okay, well treat Jesus with some respect and give him the same respect you give your friends. Are you with me? And then just tell Jesus the truth. Stop lying to him. When you read your Bible, you're talking to Jesus. Why would you lie to him? How embarrassing is that? Why don't you take an honesty pill and tell him what's going on? Like you would a friend. Say, hey, Jesus, I'm tired today. I need to get some sleep. I'm more tired than I usually am in this moment. But let's connect again first thing tomorrow. Or let's connect again uh, tomorrow at, at 12 p.m. When I'm, when I'm fresh, I want to give you my full attention. You matter. And folks, this keeps bringing us back to the moral lens versus the redemptive lens. Because unfortunately, we make the exchange all the time to force, excuse me, to force our Bible reading despite being overly tired at night. Stop, excuse me, stop doing that. And, And we force Bible reading in the morning despite the fact that we're really too busy to really slow down and to spend time with Jesus. Stop doing that too. The whole energy of proving yourself and proving yourself and proving yourself and proving yourself comes from the moral lens that prioritizes the wrong things. It makes it black and white. It makes it technical. and It becomes rule-based and legalistic. It sucks the passion and the joy and the vibrancy out of your relationship with Jesus. Do you get that? Okay, stop doing that. But when you pick up those those mighty, those mighty spirit-filled redemptive lenses, your relationship with Jesus moves from transactional, meaning I'm doing it for the sake of doing it so I don't feel bad, to relational. 
you start to realize that Jesus isn't counting how many times you show up at 6 a.m. to get so you can get a sticker on your behavior chart. <laughs> because I got news for you. There's no sticker or behavioral chart. This isn't kindergarten. It's not happening. And this freedom, folks, mm, when the Holy Spirit gets your heart, this freedom doesn't compel you to move away from Jesus and become lackadaisical. On the contrary, it drives you towards Jesus. It frees you up to be real with Jesus and authentic with Jesus and to be human before Jesus. It allows you to create a rhythm to meet with Jesus without a mandate. I'm going to say it again. It allows you to be human, authentic, and genuine to create a rhythm with Jesus without, without a mandate. And this principle is so important for the Rochelle family home. Like, folks, I work really hard to create rhythms that don't become traditions and rituals and spiritual mandates in and of themselves. Be careful, fathers, priests of your home, mothers leading the home. Be careful that your traditions don't become spiritual mandates. And the best way to do that is to keep them fluid and flexible and ever-changing and moving. That's how you keep things the right way alive with Jesus. I know this is a this is a this is a soft a pain point for some people, but you got to hear this. The more you create legalistic locked-in traditions around Christmas or around anything, we always do it this way. We always do it this way. We always read the Bible every day at seven. We always do it this. We, and when you do that, especially to the Tetricus, our young children, we infuse into them the moralistic lens. And it becomes rule-based and it robs the authenticity and the vibrancy and the uniqueness and the spontaneity of Christ. So, so for the Rochelle family home, I work really hard to, to go three or four years doing Christmas one way. And then I change it categorically. And then I change it categorically. But what never changes is that Jesus is at the center of the Rochelle family Christmas. That's how you protect your home from the moralistic lens. So, so we meet with Jesus because we love Jesus, not because we have to. We, we have Saturday night devotions because we want to. And when we don't, my home reads, the sky is not going to fall, okay? But look at me. When I sit with Jesus and when my family sits with Jesus, we give them our, our full and undivided attention because Jesus is speaking. I don't read about what he says to my family. I understand that Jesus is presently talking, and that energy carries me forth. Man, I want this so bad for you, and this is something I want you to get with all your heart. Okay, so 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 eyes up here one more time with, with mind so clear. Eyes up here with mind so clear. Folks, we must allow the Word of God to confront us we have to do it. The Word of God is Jesus' breath. The upnustos. We must, we must allow God's breath to, to disturb our security and to undermine our, compla our complacency and to overthrow every single pattern and thought and behavior that stands 
contrary to him because God is trying to shape and inform you into a disciple of Jesus. Do you get that? Okay, so as the lead pastor of this church, I want to create as many opportunities for these spirit-filled, God-breathed confrontations and relationship-building opportunities for you to have with Jesus practically. One way that we do that is in the context of each Sunday morning when the when God's word goes forth and we herald his voice. You get that? And and for those who serve in leadership at our church right now, specifically those who are aspiring to be teachers and preachers here, listen. One of the coolest things about teaching here at RCC is that you never, ever have to feel like you have to be something, okay? You don't never have to preach fancy. All we do here at RCC and all I'm asking you to do here as the lead pastor is to just echo what God says right here in the Bible. There will never be another requirement on you, um, on you from me. No, no. All you have to do is be an echoing force with Jesus. So may the force, may the force be, may the force be with you. And, and to everyone else, when you come to church physically or you log in remotely, try your best to, to show up, okay? Don't come on autopilot. Like, I know it's hard to do this week in and, and week out, but seriously, try to lean in. Come in with expectancy, not just to learn from the Bible or to hear from the Bible or to learn about Jesus. Try to come to church to experience Jesus talking directly to you because he is. Okay, like folks, I understand that life gets busy and our jobs get demanding and family demands get overwhelming and that sometimes we feel like we're running on fumes. But when you're here in the Word of God and you open the text, Jesus wants to make a disciple out of you. And he wants to make you wise for salvation. And he wants to confront you and overthrow your complacency and disrupt every single foundation that you're building your life upon that's contrary to him so that he can build you back up with a better foundation for a life with him on his gospel and his word alone. Okay, now now here's a second way. Here's a second way we can create an, this opportunity here at RCC. And we're going to be, namely, to practice being in the presence of Jesus. And we're going to start this in June with our home groups, okay? Because within home groups, we're going to have the opportunity to open our Bibles. Now just hear me preach and explain it. I mean, open our Bibles and read our Bibles and to be taught from Jesus directly. And I can't wait to do that. And we're going to love each other and admonish one another and encourage one another. And we're going to train each other up. But folks, in our home groups, we're going to learn how to let Jesus do it directly instead of just us opinionizing everything all the time. Folks, here at Redemption City Church, we want you to be confronted every time you open God's Word because we believe that all of it, all of it, Genesis to Revelations, is the Word of the Lord. We believe it's God's breath. They have Muslims. And we believe that it's here for a reason, and it's shaping, and it's informing you into a disciple of Jesus. 
He's still doing the same work he did in the Gospels. Okay, so, so, so here, here, here's some things. Here's, here's three ways, okay? Here's three ways that I want you to think about how people, how people respond to Scripture. And, and there's one way, though. There's one way out of them that I, that I hope we can respond by. But, but here's the three ways that people respond to Scripture. And we're going to have to make that decision as we move forward towards the summer. What kind of people are we going to be? How are we going to respond? Okay, here we go. Here's one way that people respond to Scripture. Number one, people respond with aggression. <laughs> and, and they say, you know what? What this is saying and what the people in the church are saying, I can't believe this crap. This stuff is archaic. How can they actually read their Bibles and believe this stuff? Don't they know it contradicts themselves? Don't they know that this is not true? And don't they know that what they're teaching isn't, isn't up to date and that it's not current and it's out of step with modern sensibilities? Those folks, those are kind of things that people that are aggressive to the Bible are going to say. And, and folks, this has been happening since the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with Satan in the New Testament as well with the Pharisees, namely people trying to trap Jesus up in his words. So yes, folks, this is a very aggressive stance. Now, now I want you to focus on what I just said. I said, people trying to trap up Jesus because the Bible is Jesus speaking. So when a person is like, I don't believe in the Bible, it's contradiction, it's archaic, they're saying, I don't believe in you, Jesus. You're an ar archaic structure. You don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. So that's, that's aggressive. That's a very aggressive stance. And, and, and Luke 20 really shows this aggression when the Pharisees confront Jesus and said, on whose authority do you get to speak and talk like that? So yes, folks, this responsive aggression has been happening through the biblical times and is happening still towards Jesus today. Okay, here's a second way, though, that some people respond. So, so some people respond aggressively towards Jesus when he speaks. So Jesus talks through the Bible, and people have an aggressive response, right? Here's another response people have when Jesus, when he speaks. Here it is. People respond with apathy. Oh, man. Okay, so, so this response of, of apathy appears as more neutral, and it feels less problematic to the, to, um, in juxtaposition to the, aggressive, the aggression response. But folks, I'm here to tell you it's actually way more dangerous in the world that we live in today. Okay, so, so let me tell you what apathy looks like in our culture or what an apathetic response to Jesus speaking looks like. It looks like those dusty old Bibles we learned about in Jonah part one with King Josiah and his nation that forgot about God and his word. Like, like God was speaking, but, but King Josiah and his nation, they, they weren't listening. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's being socially correct. Like, it's like having the Bible on your shelf or having it on your nightstand or in your guest room. That's, that's what it looks like. Like, excuse me, it's, it's kind of like, you know, a fancy concept where you kind of embody the principles of Jesus, but you don't, but you don't really, you don't really know him and you don't really care to know him. In fact, there's, there's a really fancy term that describes really well this, this apathetic response to Jesus, and it's pervading not only the, the, the world, but our Christian churches now, and it's called moral the, um, therapeutic deism, folks. 
and 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 I put together a simple yet profound pastoral definition. I don't want to I don't want you guys getting lost in some sophisticated definition. So I put together a simple yet pastoral definition of what moral therapeutic deism is because we need to know this because listen folks, many Christians today are not Christians. They're moral therapeutic deists. So here it is. It's it's on your screen. Moral Therapeutic deism is the deep desire to be good people and to live relatively good lives and to feel emotionally good about it. It's to live a life where you are encouraged and you want to volunteer and help others feel good and encouraged as well. It's where you want to believe in God and worship God as long as he doesn't get involved in your business and make you change things on a fundamental level with your family. It's, it's when you acknowledge God and you say you'll pray to him when your friend says they're sick, but you won't actually follow up and pray to him about your friend's sickness. Like there's no real intention to cancel your plans or to interrupt your family rhythms at dinner, at, at dinner time or your book reading or to pull into the bedroom and to enter into prayers and supplications and intercession on their behalf because that would be a break of your rhythm and tradition. But you will, you'll think of your sick friend often and send positive thoughts and maybe even desire to bring them a meal or to take them to an appointment, or something, something like that. And folks, that's the type of living, that, excuse me, that type of living results from biblical apathy, or moralistic therapeutic deism. So is that you? Is that you? And before you too quickly say it's not you, I want you to know that modern day secular sociologists had this to say in a recent study in 2017, about us Christians. Are you ready? Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. It's, it's weighty, it's sobering, and it's, it's disappointing. Here go, here's a take from secular sociologists looking at us as Christians. Largely, we have found that American evangelicals are far more moral, or excuse me, are far more moral therapeutic theorists than they are actual Christians when we examine and see the standard that comes from their own ancient book and its explanation about themselves. Wow. Wow, folks, that, that's sobering. And if you come from a long family line of Christianity, you may be startled to understand where Christianity, where Christianity actually finds its roots in your family heritage. Because, listen, the last few centuries, you actually used to gain social capital by, by being a part of the church. And I want you to know that more of our family backgrounds, if you go back to your great-great-grandfathers, okay, a large portion of our backgrounds in Christianity comes because it was a social capital gain. Folks, being a part... Why does that matter right now? It doesn't matter. It matters. It's been the fundamentals. It's been the spirit underneath some of your family traditions that have carried through that spirit still living alive in you. You may not know it, and I want to expose it today. Folks, being a part of the church used to help you to sell more cars. It used to help you to sell more insurance. It helped you to get involved in the community and to find friendship circles in your neighborhood. And it gave you spiritual encouragement that you needed for the week. 
This is what it used to be to be a Christian. It was a social move. So, so let me ask you a question. When you originally came to RCC, did you primarily come here for an opportunity to find, com- to find a community of worshipers of God to go on Matthew chapter 28 mission all throughout this city and ultimately out to the ends of the world to sacrifice and to, and to die to yourself and to suffer alongside them? Think faithfully with me. Did you come looking for a group of worshipers of God so that you could suffer with them for the sake of the gospel? Or did you look for friends that you could enjoy life with and learn spiritual things? Which one? Or how about I reverse the question this way? What happens when you start to lose social capital by staying in the church? Because that's where we're heading. Like, like what happens? What are you going to do when because you stay in the church, you start to lose social capital? People start calling you names, persecuting you, punishing you because you stand up for the Bible. What happens when you start to lose social capitalists in the way that you start to lose the opportunity to gain more financially, you start to lose the opportunity to gain more relationally, and you actually have to sacrifice all of that in the name of Jesus and the gospel? What's going to happen for you then? Come on. If your job right now requires you to do things that stands contrary to the Bible, or they ask you flat out to renounce your faith, are you prepared for that? And some of us are like, oh, I would never do anything that makes me renounce my faith. But what about the first question? What if they're asking you to do something that directly stands in opposition to the word that has authority over your life? <laughs> Listen to me. This, this right here, This is biblical apathy. It's to not respond to God's word with great great intentionality. Folks, this response of apathy is the biggest problem in America today. And far too many Christians are traditionalists and nominal and are apathetic to the real voice of God. But look at your pastor, okay? This mushy middle ground of biblical apathy and moral theistic deism, it's crumbling beneath us more and more every day. Every study that's going on right now, this mushy middle, it's falling away. And what God has done faithfully in COVID is to make that mushy middle place, this moral therapeutic deism place, a place that none of us can stand on as easily anymore. Have you been feeling that current? Because, check with me, because why on earth would you want to stand on the mushy middle foundation apathetically where you're not passionate for Jesus, but you're not aggressive, you're just, you're just apathetic about everything, when, when culture already is already starting to see you as a bigot? For being a Christian, think about this. Why would you lose the opportunities that you could have by just fully leaning in and being secular? Why are you being apathetic? You're not going to be able to stay here much longer. Know this. More and more churches are returning to thy scriptures. They just are, folks. you gotta, you got to know what's going on right now in the Christian world. More and more churches. God is redeeming churches and it's happening, it's happening more and more every day. And as the church continues to redeem, 
And as young ministers grow with a palpable desire to preach faithfully, genuine disciples of Christ are going to rise from the ashes. <laughs> and those who are living in the cushiony, mushy middle will finally have to make a choice, okay? And it'll be either that you're going to have to fully lean into Jesus or you're going to fall away. Mark my word. Like, you can totally leave RCC right now and still find plenty of places that are going to preach that mushy middle place that your biblical, apathetic heart wants to have, where you can just coast and not be challenged and kind of make up your own thing and have internal authority that you place on the external authority. But I guarantee you, your children right now that are under the age of 10, they're not going to have that option laid before them when they lead their families. And you need to prepare them. The mushy middle is evaporating, folks. I can't break that down. I can't give you all the understanding in the churches and the conferences and the pastors as we're watching. Just know the mushy middle is evaporating. And God is calling his church back to himself. COVID and other pain points of life are forcing you and me to pledge our allegiance to God and his church or ourselves and our barn houses. That is what COVID and these pain points are doing. It's either we're leaning heavy into the church with our pain or we're leaning heavy into ourselves. And, and every thoughtful pastor alive today knows this and is praying about this and is preparing their people for this. And that's why I'm doing it. So you really have two options, okay? You can stand with Jesus and his authority, or you can be a despiser of him. But you can't be apathetic. It's not going to work. You can believe in the Lord thy God, and you can submit to his complete authority. The, and you can believe in Theopneustos, that all scripture is breathed out and is perfectly done. Or, or you can question him and his book and his sovereignty and his sufficiency and his infallibility and have 18,000 holes in your heart, and you're going to fall away in the end. That's what the word teaches us. It was right here in the text. But you won't be able to call God Lord while you simultaneously reject his teachings. And his teachings today is the continental divide that says all of his scripture is breathed out. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, and training in righteousness Okay, so, so how do people respond when Jesus speaks? So when the Bible is read and Jesus speaks, people respond with aggression when they hear Jesus talk. People respond apathetically when Jesus responds. I'm like, ah, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't agree. I'll just do this part. Or people respond with adoration. Adoration. And folks, we as Christians, as disciples of the Lord, we must respond with adoration. Folks, we must bow. We must bow to the authority of Christ by bowing to the authority of his present voice that is alive and well in thy word. We must believe that God, excuse me, we must believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word through which Jesus is trying to create a disciple out of us. He's trying to create a disciple out of you and me through the word. We must adjust to the scriptures and stop trying to make the scriptures adjust to us. I'm going to say to you again, we have to adjust to the scripture instead of trying to have the scripture adjust to us. 
we cannot accommodate alternative ideologies anymore. We got to throw them away. We cannot fear rejection from people. We got to lean into it because we know that Jesus is seated on his throne room and he's alive and well. He's there. He's there now. He's reigning. And he's and come rain or shine every single day that you exist is a good day. No matter what happens to you or what's said about you or what happens to us as Christians here on this earth, every day that Jesus is on his throne is a good day. But folks, it's going to be even a better day when God brings his throne room down to this world again like he promised. And he will deliver it. So in the meantime... We believe and we trust in the sovereignty of God and in, the, and, in, and in his glorious gospel. And we do not respond with aggression when Jesus talks. And we do not respond. Look at me. We do not respond with apathy when Jesus talks. We respond with adoration and devotion. And, and as we consider what's next for us in the Redemptive Christianity series, we shouldn't have to go very far, right? We're going to keep working through the Word of God because all we have to do is to turn our attention and be taught by Jesus directly from His Word. So, so, so Paul says, so, so let's get back to this as we land the plane right here. So Paul comes to Timothy and he says, young minister, you're going to live in a time where people are going to be rude, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, they're going to be false teachers and all these different things, Right? And he says, but for you, Timothy, I want you to know that all scripture, all sacred writing is breathed out from the word of God is profitable for, for right teaching and reproof and all that. Okay. So, so then Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, now, if you're, if you're with me and if you're with Jesus, if you're really, really, really with Jesus, I want you to know this. And folks, I want you to hear Jesus right now. Let's do our first practice of Jesus speaking to us directly, okay? And we're going we're gonna to end here. We're going to pray here. Let's do our first practice of Jesus speaking to us directly. So, so Paul says to Timothy, if you're really with me, and if you really know Jesus and you're with him, I want you to hear this from Jesus. And, and RCC, if you're with Jesus and you're really, really with him, here's what Jesus says to you. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. I charge you, Brandon. I charge you, Jillian. I charge you, Aiden. I charge you, Aubrey. I charge you, Ezekiel. I charge you, Noah. I charge you, Vanessa. I charge you, Jack. I charge you, Raymond and Leilani and Matthew and Jesse and Lynette and Carl and Brianna and Martin and Bobby and, and, and Silas and Philemon and everybody. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Brandon, Ezekiel, whatever your name is, be ready in season and out of season. Re, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. <laughs> 
to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Wow, folks. May we all fulfill our ministry according to what we just read right here. We're going to be talking about this for the next couple weeks. Let's, let's walk with Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you bowing to your word. Jesus, you tell us that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you, and we are men and women under that authority. And, and in our sinful rebellion, we, we, we did have misplaced courage. We did have that misplaced courage to seek out our truth for ourselves, but, but you came seeking for us, and you purchased us, and you loved us, and you died on the cross for us, and you showed yourself, and you renewed us into affections for you. And so we pray now for this nation and the nations of the world and the ru rulers of this world, that they too might bow to the authority of you, Lord, as King. Jesus, you are King and Lord and ruler of us all. And I pray for any rebellious heart in this room that they too may see Jesus as beautiful and that you, God, you and your word, is that they would see it as good and, and true and, and sure. And I pray, I pray, Lord, for theopneustos, that we would, that you would illuminate, Lord, the reality that your word is alive and that you breathe it currently every time we open the pages. And so may the next few weeks be different. May they be productive and may we keep taking wise steps as we practice being in your presence. It's in your matchless and beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Grace and peace.